Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices, and you're going to notice a bit of a theme to today's show. It's something that's actually on a lot of people's minds. We're going to be talking about energy, and specifically clean energy. And to to help kick things off for us today, we want to welcome uh, Lindsay Kaiser back to the show. Lindsay, I know you're a Young Voices contributor, but uh, you wear a number of other hats. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Brian, thank you for having me. Um, Yes, in addition to writing for Young Voices, I am... A rising senior at the University of Michigan. I'm editor-in-chief of the Michigan Journal of Political Science, which has been a blast. Um, and I also am editor-in-chief of the Michigan Review, which is our sort of countercultural newspaper on campus. I don't even know what counterculture means these days. <laughs> I mean, you may, you might, at some point... It's we our are polite way of saying uh, not leftist. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, that's it. I was yeah. hoping that's what it meant. I'm, yes. I'm very intrigued by the article of yours that I'm looking at um, regarding empowering energy innovation and, and bringing the concept of the regulatory sandbox to the table in, in pursuit of this. Now, specifically, you were talking about this in Michigan, but let's, let's dig in at the larger level first. Um, Everybody's feeling the pinch of the pump right now. It's clear oh gosh, that yeah. uh, energy, not just you know electricity, but energy is needed. So um, what are some of the ways that, that we should be addressing this? You know, what's funny is energy as a sector nationally is like one of the least um, – has the least re um, investment from its own, you know, corporations just naturally compared to like pharmaceuticals, you know, there's a lot of research and development that goes into that, but energy, not so much. And I think that a lot of that is because it's very heavily regulated. So it's really difficult. There's, you know, lots of barriers to entry for small firms to get in to deal with not even things like finding new energy sources entirely, but with distribution or transport, there's definitely ways that we can cut down on carbon emissions and that we can make things cheaper as well for consumers um, by working with the sort of, you know, along the supply chain to innovate. Um, And that's just, that's just not happening nationally yet. No. And, and, you know, I know there's, there's a temptation on some part to, for some people to want to blame, well, this is all because of the conflict in Ukraine. It's, you know, it's Putin's fault or it's, it's because of geopolitics, but, but there's actually a lot more that goes into this. And and I think the term energy independence, I heard that a little bit more in the last couple of years, but it also seems it coincided with official actions that were that appeared to be limiting our energy independence or at least reining it in to the point where we really, I I don't know. It seems like we're between a rock and a hard place right now. Yeah, no, you're definitely right. And it's funny because I feel as though, I mean, the current administration has said, well, we're not going to work with Russia anymore to get, you know, resources. And that's terrific. But then that means we have to turn to like Saudi Arabia and other countries who also perhaps have governments that don't exactly espouse our liberty centric values. So I'm not, you know, it's on one hand, it's like, that's great. Um, but also perhaps it might be better to make energy at home where we know that we can control it. We know that we have good, you know, checks and balances in place um, to make sure that people aren't getting, you know, hurt um, or mistreated, you know, when the energy gets produced. Um, so, yeah, no, you're totally right that in terms of energy, we really are between a rock and a hard place, which is why, you know, sandboxes are such a great idea, because it really is just a wholly new you know, way to approach energy that doesn't require time, you know, spent deregulating or regulating in a different way or, you know, generating new legislation. 
So, so for, for those who aren't familiar with the regulatory sandbox, I know this is starting to catch on in, in states all across the, the country. <laughs> um, in a nutshell, what, is, what does this allow? If, if, if a business is trying to innovate, what does the regulatory sandbox allow that uh, it can't do in, in states that don't have it? Right. Yeah. A regulatory sandbox allows businesses that get approval um, after giving a pitch to usually the courts in that state um, to have a limited time period, somewhere between two to five years to develop you know, a new technology or a new way of doing something. And they don't have to go through the legal hurdles that other corporations do have. Um, and it could be that you know the laws are written to deal with um, natural gas, and now someone wants to go and innovate with solar power, but because it's energy, they have to listen to the natural gas laws. But that's kind of silly because solar power has a lot of different ways of being harvested, and it's also a clean energy source. So we shouldn't be, you know, hindering the chance to develop more sustainable sources of energy. Um, but so that's what a regulatory sandbox would provide. But I, I want to stress that it's time limited. This is not the government saying. A business can just go and, and innovate forever and never be regulated. And we're going to pick and choose the best ones. It's not that. It's a business saying, we think we have an idea. Take a chance on us. And if it doesn't work in two years, we get dropped. You know, And you go back and the taxpayer doesn't get harmed in the long run You know, for a business endeavor that doesn't work. Lindsay, is the immense amount of regulation that you'll find in, in pretty much any um, sector of American life today, is that what helps limit, artificially limit um, our ability to innovate in terms of energy? I would say so. I think, you know, it's funny, like Michigan, as, as my prime example, um, their third or fourth biggest, you know, um, energy source is nuclear which that is changing. They are shutting down some plants, but it's still much cleaner than coal, which is like the third largest, you know, production source of energy. Um, So there's definitely a lot of regulation that is hampering the chance to innovate, like I said, sort of along the supply chain. I mean, I don't think we're going to come around and find, you know, this new miracle plant that's going to like grow back (laughs) and give us clean energy forever and, you know, take carbon out of the atmosphere. But if we can make things less expensive, especially now, um, and or cleaner. I mean, that would just be, that would be really ideal. Well, and you point out in your article, and I, and I thought this is so true, utility companies are the least likely to innovate out of all the business sectors. And I mean, I understand, okay, it works, <laughs> you know, let's not fix it. But right. at the same time, yeah. you know, we're as, as we're starting to see, there are some places where we're vulnerable. This is particularly true in, in energy and energy prices, so right. people are already out of the comfort zone. Maybe it's time to to embrace it. <laughs> let let the innovation begin. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's the other thing is, I mean, there were there were comments on a lot of fintech regulatory sandboxes that, well, big banks are just going to shut this down because big banks and governments have been going hand in hand. But actually, in the UK, where they had the strongest fintech sandbox, HSBC ended up merging with a company that helped to improve fintech through a sandbox and taking those innovations in and working on them on a larger scale. And so I think, you know, DTE, Consumers Energy and other energy, um, you know, companies nationwide could really benefit from a small company going in saying, hey, we have something, you know, let's let's get the regulation off the table for a minute and let us help you develop clean energy so that DTE doesn't have to go through the R&D itself, you know. Lindsay, what do you see in, in the course of, of writing and researching this? What, what are some of the more promising innovations regarding energy that, that you see on the horizon? Well, 
I really mostly can talk about Michigan on that one. Um, Michigan is huge for biomass, um, generating energy through biomass. They're really, really doing well with that one. Um, And there's like little companies um, called, I want to say Heritage Sustainable Energy that's really getting in with wind as well. Um, So wind power is a big one. And those are probably... I don't want to sound ecologically unaware, but um, could you spell out what is biomass? What exactly is, is that referring to? Um, that's a great question. I think it's like using food waste, burning food waste, if I'm not mistaken, to make heat, to make energy. Oh, interesting. Um, I had not heard of yes. it. And I mean, I, but I'm not certain. I mean, you know, I actually learned about it in, in high school and I really should remember. Well, but I admit I'm, I'm I not the most ecologically it's supposedly more in, sustainable, but it, yeah. it, it sounds so fascinating. And of course, as yeah. you mentioned, wind, wind power and, um, I don't know. I I can't see us stepping out of the the realm of fossil fuels, but it sure feels like we're being pushed, you know, herded towards that exit. Maybe the time will come, and I, and I want the innovations to come, but I, I'm, I'm content with with getting there, taking the scenic route, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And so there's things. I mean, it's like natural gas, like it, the gas itself. Okay, burning it, combusting it generates carbon, but there's also a lot of carbon used to transport it, right? And so if we can figure out a way to or if a regulatory sandbox can allow a corporation to figure out a way to make that process less carbon heavy that's already a way that we're contributing you know to better climate policies without going because regulation is why we're in this mess in the first place you know like why prices are so high why people don't have actually a lot of options with energy policy um you know it's it's not the most um competitive industry which is which makes sense like it's hard it's hard to you know get that startup going um, but regulatory sandboxes would really allow for a lot more innovation and, and hopefully lower consumer prices, which, you you know, there's two wins. There's better for the environment and there's lowering consumer prices. And hopefully this could do both at the same time, which would be nice. <laughs> and and if it's along the way, if it just happened to reduce the governmental footprint slightly, what I mean, that would be maybe an added right. bonus. A little less I wouldn't regulatory. complain. Yes. All right. We're talking with Lindsay Kaiser. Lindsay, tell people where they can uh, find your your written material. Where can they find you on social media? Yeah, they could totally find me at Twitter at Kaiser underscore Lindsay. And I have other articles in the Detroit News um, about energy in Michigan. So, yeah, thank you so much, Brian. Okay, thank you. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Moving forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Jacob Puckett back to the show. Jacob is a Young Voices contributor, and tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Well, great to be back on your show, Brian. Good afternoon to you and your listeners. Uh, I am an energy analyst, and I I write and research a lot about energy policy um, at the state level and at the national level. Uh, So I'm happy to join and talk about this topic today. You know, I'm, I hear a lot of concerns anytime someone talks about energy, and, and it seems like uh, the concern of all is always, well, we're destroying the environment by generating electricity with coal or with natural gas. Um, and, and you know what? I, I can believe coal pump, you know, coal smoke pumping out into the atmosphere, probably not a good thing. But 
I have your article here about how there are a couple of uh, clean energy stalwarts that are finally getting the attention they deserve. And I realize we don't hear a lot about nuclear power and we don't hear a lot about hydropower. Why is that? Is it did they not serve somebody's agenda? <laughs> well, that's a good question. And it's kind of ironic because these two sources of energy, hydropower and nuclear power, make up a combined two thirds of all of the carbon free, clean electricity that we have. And in, in this case, you know, the, the oldies really are the goodies. These have been around for decades and decades. And you know, part of the problem is we might just be so used to them. Uh, they're, they're not the new thing uh, necessarily, although there, there are a lot of exciting new developments with nuclear energy technology that we can talk about. Um, but these have been around for so long and they've worked effectively for so long that we might have just gotten used to them. You know, the other day I walked in and my daughter was watching uh, a show about Three Mile Island on Netflix or something. And mm. and I was curious to see what her reaction was, because I, I I was a kid. I was probably about her age when Three Mile Island happened. And I remember there was, you know, oh, this see, this proves why nuclear power is so dangerous. And it was in later years I learned that uh, it could have been a dangerous situation, but the the amount of radiation that uh, that was actually released at Three Mile Island was was negligible. You know, I mean, it, I'm not saying that it was it was nothing, but it was it was not nearly the life ending event that some portrayed it to be. So give me a sense. How safe? I mean, what's the track record of nuclear power? I know it's been around a while. Has it been one of the safer ways to to generate electricity? So there are a couple things to keep in mind when approaching this question. You've got to take into account um, the amount of energy produced. So nuclear energy produces a lot of energy. Uh, and then you got to take into account um, the overall, I mean, with, with nuclear power, the headline is usually, you know, radiation deaths, which, you know, there have been very few. I, this p- piece of trivia here for Three Mile Island, zero people died from the, the reactor meltdown at Three Mile Island. Not a single person. And the amount of radiation that the people who worked there or lived nearby were exposed to was negligible compared to the radiation that you get just from you know, everyday life. You know, in, in some places, people live you know, at very high elevations. They get more just natural radiation than people you know, like me living in St. Louis who just live in a flat plains area and not very high. But when, when you take into account all these factors, um, by the amount of energy that's produced, nuclear energy is not one of the safest. It is the safest way to produce reliable, large-scale electricity. Uh, the fact that people can name, you know, one or two or three high-profile, um, you know, disasters from nuclear power is because there really only have been a handful, you know, maybe even three of these high-profile disasters. In the meantime, it's generating reliable, around-the-clock, clean electricity, you know, all over the world, not just here in America. You mentioned that there are innovations happening in nuclear energy. I'm I'm eager to learn about this because I've I've heard of some promising things, but uh, haven't uh, really haven't tried to be updated lately. What what's encouraging to you? So the newest generation of nuclear energy technology are called small modular reactors. Essentially, instead of having one gigantic huge power plant where you need all the different parts there working together. Um, these, these companies innovating in this area have been able to break it down into smaller modular reactors. So there, there's the, the, the name of the new tech right there. And it's essentially like building blocks um, where you can build up to get the same amount of energy from the 
old traditional reactors if you want to. Uh, or one of the really cool things about this technology is it's uh, it's more flexible, so it can be ramped up and down uh, more easily to accommodate you know more powers needed in the evening, less right in the middle of the day. Uh, and it's more mobile, so you can place it on site in places where you couldn't locate um, you know the big old traditional nuclear reactors. Uh, so you could put it in. Uh, an industrial park to generate, you know, clean power there, whereas you couldn't do that with a, um, a large reactor before. If a town or a city is growing, you could supplement uh, the electricity that they need by adding one or two of these small modular reactors. And it's really promising um, as this technology gets more and more attention, in particular, old coal states, states like Wyoming or Montana or even West Virginia, uh, are opening up to the idea of uh, replacing coal-powered fire plants uh, with with these new nuclear technologies. Uh, it's a way to keep the power flowing, keep the lights on, and to keep the local economies there humming uh, as coal jobs you know, transition and become a smaller part of their way of life. Well, that's exciting. Tell me about hydropower. Um, I live right along the Snake River, so I'm I'm quite familiar that you know every so often there's another power plant. You know, um, as you move on down the river, um, obviously this has been around for quite a while. Uh, now there there are some problems I'm seeing on the Colorado, for instance, uh, Lake Powell is very very low. Lake Mead is very very low. Um, I don't know how much power is is generated. You know from the power plants along the way, but um, I, I would guess it's probably significant. Is, is hydropower otherwise, though, still a, a viable, reliable way to go, or is, is it less efficient in terms of, you know, the cost to build those dams? Well, that's a good question. Um, the natural variability uh, with the amount of water and snowfall and rainfall is obviously something to take into consideration. You know, it's, it's, if, if water is the fuel, you've got to make sure you have enough water. Right. Um, but right now, there are about 80,000 dams in the U.S., and only 3% of those are outfitted with the technology to produce electricity. So there's massive untapped potential. Wow. And even if – I know it's not very many. Even if you outfitted the top 100 eligible dams with, with power-generating capabilities – you could boost nationwide hydropower electric output by ten percent. Wow! So there's a there's a lot of potential. One of the one of the difficulties with doing that though is the permitting process and all the licenses you have to get. This this is kind of mind boggling. Um, it takes longer to relicense an existing hydropower plant than to license a brand new one from scratch. So you got to make wow. sure you have both sides of the coin. You got to be able to keep the ones online that you already have and bring more online, um, you know, as there's private capital and as there's investor interest in uh, making these power plants work. And like nuclear power, you know, something that is is pretty unique to American power production is a lot of our fleet is commercially owned. It's not owned uh, by the state or by the federal government. You know, for, for some of the hydropower ones, they are. But broadly speaking, it's private, commercially owned. And that, that brings a huge potential for innovation that you know, we should be taking advantage of that and, and looking for ways to increase innovation and technological development there rather than stifling it behind layers and layers of red tape. I love it. 
Okay. I, I wish we had more time. We're actually down to like our last 30 seconds here. Um, Jacob, is there anything being done in the world of, of geothermal energy? Or is that- That's a great question. I wish um, we had more time to, to explore that. It, I, I know that's it's very exciting. Uh, some companies are looking at repurposing uh, old fracking wells uh, to get geothermal geothermal energy. Uh, I don't know how far along in the process they are, but you know, again, there's that innovation from the private ownership of our fleet. We got to be taking advantage of that. Okay, uh, tell everybody where they can find you on social media and where they can find your writing. Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Jacob R. Puckett. It's Jacob with a K, R. Puckett. And uh, you can see my articles up there. Okay. Jacob Puckett is an energy policy analyst and Young Voices contributor. Man, it's good to catch up with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome a new guest to the show here. Jeff Luce is a Young Voices contributor. Did I even say your name right there, Jeff? I probably should have asked you beforehand. Is that how you say it? Okay, tell us just a little bit about yourself. This is going to be the first time for a lot of our audience meeting you, so tell us who you are and uh, what you do. Yeah, sure. I, um, I'm a policy assistant for C3 Solutions, and that stands for the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions. Uh, we're a 501c3 uh, think tank, and we're focused on advancing, you know, free market, uh, free market conservative solutions to climate change, energy, and other environmental challenges. Now, I know it was just a couple of weeks ago that Earth Day came and went, and uh, of, of course, uh, every Earth Day. There, there are people talking about solutions and how can we make sure we're, you know, we're being good stewards of the planet and so forth. I like the article that you had published in Town Hall that says if you're really serious about making a difference, and I would assume this is on more than just Earth Day, embrace economic freedom. Let's let's connect some dots and talk about how economic freedom actually translates into a better environment. Absolutely, yeah. So I wrote the article, um, like you said, for Earth Day, but it definitely applies to more than just Earth Day. Um, I, obviously, with Earth Day, a lot of people are focused on the environment and you know meaningful ways that they can make the environment cleaner, have cleaner air, cleaner water. Um, so my group, C3 Solutions, we published a study last year called Free Economies Are Clean Economies. And what we did is we compared the Heritage Index of Economic Freedom with the Yale Environmental Performance Index. And we found that uh, mostly free economies, according to Heritage's index, scored uh, had a had a score that was twice as high on the Yale Performance Index um, than less free economies. So basically, the freer an economy is, the cleaner its environment is. And why is that? I mean, I to me it it, it makes sense, but I don't know if I could explain why. Why do people, you know, in a, in a free economy? Why, why would they take better care of things? Yeah, so it's issues of climate and the environment. Um, unfortunately, it's true, but they're sort of luxury items. You know, someone who is struggling to get by isn't going to think as much about whether or not they should get a plastic water bottle or a reusable one. Same thing goes for economies. If an economy is struggling to, you know, provide basic services and needs to its people, it's going to be more focused on that, getting, you know, indoor sewage or electricity to the grid. 
Um, so it's it's a luxury item. So as as an economy progresses and it becomes wealthier, it's able to focus and allocate more resources to um, protecting the environment, advancing you know energy innovation, conservation programs, and things like that. So it, it's what we found, and it's backed up by uh, the environmental Kuznets curve. Is as an economy grows, it initially it, it emits more emissions, more carbon emissions, but as it becomes wealthier, it eventually hits that tipping point on the bell curve and it goes down. So it continues to be wealthier, but it starts to invest in, you know, emissions reduction technologies. So as the people are more prosperous, they can afford to have, you know, low emission windows and things like that. Exactly. Yes. Oh, that's uh, no, that that actually makes sense. So what are some of the limitations or what are the biggest limitations that we see on economic freedom? And I, I mean, whether it's in, you know, noticeably free countries or countries that, that we wouldn't associate necessarily with freedom. What are, what are the advantages here? Yeah. So heritage, uh, they, they base, they, um, they measure economic freedom through the rule of law, government size, regulatory efficiency, and open markets. Um, so I think some limitations that you see with more developed countries that kind of impede on their economic freedom um, and this is certainly the case with the United States, uh, is government size. So from 2020 to 2021 and then 2022, the U.S. has progressively stepped back on Heritage's index uh, rankings. Uh, I think we're number 25 now. And that's largely due to our fiscal health, uh, the size of government, you know, the debt to GDP ratio, things like that. Uh, and then another impediment, too, is just free trade. Um, you know, as more governments and economies I think maybe has good intentions of trying to make their economy more profitable and more um, robust. But the more they limit free trade with protectionist measures such as tariffs, uh, you start to see their the open markets and their trade freedom go down, which impacts economic freedom. Well, it seems like some of the um, the biggest uh, industrialized countries, and I'm, I'm not trying to point fingers here, but you know China and maybe to some extent India. Um, they produce immense amounts of uh, of items, but they're they're also pretty lax. At least from what I understand, you know, is, they're they're very lax on on their environmental protections. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, can can the market even bring them into a, a more uh, environmentally sound state of mind simply by refusing to do business with them if they don't clean their act up? Um, refusing to do business, I'm not sure that's going to do much, uh, especially with China, because. I mean, the United States refusing to do business with them, that might hurt their pocketbooks a little bit, but you still have the rest of the developed world who's going to, you know, they're going to want those goods. They're going to want those services no matter what, because they're trying to industrialize, they're trying to develop. So they're obviously, they're going to, they're going to pick what's most profitable and what's most affordable to them. I think um, with China's government, it's very command and control, top down heavy. And what you see a lot with China is a lack of property rights protections. So uh, there was research done, and it found that, like, seven of the ten most polluting rivers, you know, rivers that contribute contribute plastic pollution to the ocean, uh, like seven out of ten of them were found in China and Africa, um, in nations with few pro- uh, protections on property rights. So it's it's really about incentivizing stewardship, I think, at the, at the grassroots level. But it's really hard with China because, you know, it's – it's not it's not like we can do too much with their gov- the way their government's structured. Um, I think what we could do is 
perhaps provide cheaper but cleaner alternatives to the rest of the developing country. I think that's one way to kind of combat them and kind of limit their expansion with their Belt and Road Initiative. So talk to me about uh, climate to climate change in general. And I just want to get your, your feel for um, I know there are people within government who would say, sure, give me more power, you know, pay me more money in taxes. I can uh, I can control the climate. Can we really um, can we reverse some of the climate change or are, are we looking more at ways to just keep from from inflicting any other kind of uh, damage? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think a lot of the times when we talk about climate change and especially from policy leaders, I think what we lack is humility with the science. I, to me, the science is very settled. I think like it points to the fact that emissions are rising largely due to man-made emissions, um, man-made activity, I should say. Um, so I think what we should be doing, you know, it's it is harder to predict with climate models and things like that. But what we should be doing is pursuing policies that make economic sense and make environmental sense. Um, so, you know, if it's like we're 15 years down the line and it turns out that maybe climate change wasn't as big of an issue as we thought, at least we pursued these policies that boosted our economy and cleaned up our environment. Um, so I think that's definitely important. I think in investing in adaptation measures, um, one thing would be reforming building codes uh, to be more weather resilient. Another thing would be reforming the way our uh, insurance premiums are. So you see that in, especially along the coast uh, with the National Flood Insurance Program, uh, the premiums aren't set to reflect the actual risk of flooding. So, you know, building practices happen on areas that could flood um, and they're somewhat affordable. So what we could be doing is updating flood mapping and things like that to really incentivize smarter building practices. So tell me then, um, who are the leaders worldwide in, in trying to make this happen? I mean, is this is this happening at a global level or is this being led out by, you know, the the West? What, mm-hmm. What's your yeah. sense? Yeah, um, it is. I mean, obviously, you have the U.N. who's very gung ho on this um, with the Paris Climate Accord, and things like that. Uh, I think the West is obviously leading because, again, we kind of have the luxury to our economies are more industrialized and even the um, it's, you know, projections are even showing that like future emissions are going to largely come from developing nations. So it is mostly the West. Uh, the U.S. has done a great job uh, with emissions reductions, and that's been primarily through free markets, uh, especially with the fracking revolution, which displaced a lot of coal generation. Um, so we've been, you know, leading the world. I think the IEA, International Energy Agency, they said since 2000, the world, the United States has been leading the world in total emissions reductions. Um, I think individually, like there are some policymakers who are really great on this. Uh, Garrett Graves, who's from Louisiana, uh, John Curtis from Utah. So it, it's it's been it's been the West, and I think what what's going to make us successful ultimately is just uh, unleashing uh, innovation, reducing barriers so the private sector can you know flourish and, and thrive. Okay, again, we are talking with Jeff Luz. He is a Young Voices contributor. He's also a policy assistant at the uh, Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, or C3 Solutions. Jeff, where can people find you on social media? Where can they find your writing? Yeah, um, so C3 Solutions, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all, all of the above. We also have a news magazine called C3. Uh, it's at c3newsmag.com. Uh, you'll find our writing, um, other conservative writing, it really just goes to highlight the 
massive movement of conservative libertarian free market thinkers on the issue. Okay. Thank you so much. It was great to visit with you. Great. Thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment of the day. Happy to welcome Christopher Bernard back to the uh, to the show. He's the National Policy Director at the American Conservation Coalition and a regular political commentator and Young Voices contributor. Chris, it's good to have you back. Yeah, it's good to be back. So some people are probably meeting you for the first time. Maybe uh, give us some details. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Well, I am the National Policy Director, as you mentioned, for the American Conservation Coalition. Our focus really is to give uh, conservatives a voice on climate and environmental issues uh, and to show that conservative ideas, limited government ideas are fully compatible with caring about the environment and wanting to tackle a problem like climate change. Um, And so I'm based in D.C. and uh, do a lot of our political work. And I'm looking at an article that uh, was published on RealClearPolitics.com. America needs to win the clean energy arms race. Wow, I, I have to say this this was very eye opening, and and you know it's not like I'm I'm in shock anymore when I stand at the gas pump. But um, you make the case here: energy security is is national security, and and right now. Um, we're in a bit of a tight spot. I mean, we we seem to be weathering things okay. I understand in Europe, it's getting tougher, you know, and very expensive for energy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bad here. It's worse in Europe, and really, what we're seeing is um, the evidence of bad climate and energy policy unfolding in Europe. Um, and and what's happened essentially is countries like Germany have entirely. Uh, ruined their domestic energy industries. Uh, Germany phased out all of its nuclear plants. They basically kneecapped their domestic natural gas industry. Um, And other European countries followed suit. Uh, And instead of kind of going to renewable energy to replace all of this lost energy, they went to Russia to replace it with fossil fuels. And so essentially what's happened is you you have a situation where um, European countries are relying on a dictatorship to supply their energy needs and they're indirectly filling the war coffers that Putin is using to invade Ukraine right now. And that's also had an impact on the U.S. because we're still we're still very much impacted by global energy markets. And my central argument in the article is that um, the U.S. and the West more broadly needs to have a much clearer understanding of we cannot rely on countries like Russia and China for our energy future. And, and we need to be much more secure and independent ourselves and then uh, talking about the policies that we can uh, we can pursue to achieve that. I love that in your article you talk about this is this is where the issues of national security, energy independence and domestic economic pressure have come together and they're all they're all begging for the same solution. Talk to us about some of the, the solutions that that should be on the table. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're exactly right when when you talk about the fact that these all these different issues are are intersecting and so when people talk about climate policy Climate policy is energy policy, and energy policy is national security policy. National security policy is economic policy. You can't separate these different things from each other. In terms of the policies that we need to pursue to uh, become more energy secure and to be more energy independent, uh, well, firstly, it is clear in the short term we need more oil and gas. We need to help bring down prices. We need to be less reliant on, on Russia and other countries, and we need to give relief to Americans at the pump. 
And so that a lot of what Biden has done is he's made it harder for the domestic energy industry. He killed Keystone Pipeline on day one. He uh, implemented a moratorium on oil and gas leasing, which was overturned by the courts. But he's eroded investor confidence in the energy industry in the U.S. And so we need to reinstate that and we need to uh, start producing more energy here in the U.S. Uh, Long term, however, we can't just be relying on oil and gas. Oil and gas are still subject to international prices. They are finite resources and we can't ever risk running out and then having to rely on other countries. We need to diversify our energy portfolio. That includes clean energy. We need to go towards nuclear energy, uh, have more nuclear, stop shutting down nuclear plants for God's sake, um, and also invest in renewables and carbon capture and storage and hydrogen and battery storage and all those really awesome clean technologies that will help us um, both be energy secure, but also tackle a, a problem like climate change. And, and we can talk about this a little bit more, but the problem right now is that we rely on China for almost all of those technologies. And we can't rely, we can't um, replace reliance on Russia with reliance on China. No, agreed. We can't be, well, we, we've got to be independent. And I, I have to wonder, though, um, in, in terms of who wants to see these, these green um, these, uh, the, these green methods of, of, of getting energy, uh, I, I get the sense that uh, at least the people who are in power right now politically are kind of hurrying us towards the exit. I mean, you talk about we need a period of time where we can ramp down from fossil fuels because that's what things run on right now. And it seems like that process is being significantly sped up by some of the policy decisions, at least of the current administration. Do you you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you see it in governments across the world. You see, that's what Germany did by closing down their natural gas plants and their nuclear plants. They thought they could just replace it with renewables. And when that didn't work out, because simply you can't force technology to go faster, um, they just weren't, weren't, they had to supply their energy with fossil fuels from Russia. And so what they're doing is actually increasing emissions and relying on a, on a dictatorship to do it rather than getting it from, from domestically. Um, but similar in, in the U.S., states like California and New York are also shutting down natural gas, shutting down nuclear energy. And what's happening is you have all kinds of problems with sky-high energy prices, um, and them actually having to rely on other U.S. states to supply energy when renewables can fit the bill. And so really what we need to be doing is we need to be more um, realistic about what this looks like and less idealistic because idealism is really what's brought us to this situation. Tell me about uh, your take on uh, globally, you know, the the conflict in Ukraine is is sending a lot of shockwaves out that are affecting a lot of other countries. What are some of the uh, things that you see this doing for um, energy worldwide? Is this, is this going to put other nations in the same position that we're in where, you know, they've got those coinciding interests and, and need to, to start looking at different solutions? Yeah, I mean, in the, in the short term, countries are really hurting. Uh, the other day, Russia shut off natural gas to Belarus, um, uh, to, sorry, to Bulgaria and to Poland. And so those countries are hurting. Europe, European countries are hurting. Even the U.S., which is pretty much energy independent, is still hurting from this situation. And I think you're seeing a, a really interesting shift policy-wise across the world. You have countries like Belgium and South Korea that are reverting their nuclear phase-out. You have Japan that is starting to go, going to start restart its nuclear reactors. And you have all kinds of other countries from Turkey to Canada to Poland that are building new nuclear reactors Similarly, these countries are realizing that actually maybe LNG is not the complete enemy and getting LNG from the U.S. is probably preferable to getting LNG from Russia. 
And so you see countries starting to wake up to that as well. Germany is building new LNG terminals in the next few years here to get LNG from America because they don't want this situation to happen again. Okay, so this may seem like kind of a weird question, but uh, this this pops into my head. There are states like Wyoming, uh, parts of Utah, West Virginia, with immense amounts of coal. Um, is it best if we reach a point where that coal just sits in the ground? <laughs> it's as useful as just plain old dirt? Or is is it... Uh, as the as cleaner technologies come along, or would you support the idea of still finding ways to use that just because there is energy contained within it? It just needs to be used in, in a cleaner way. I think ultimately we have to look at what's happened to coal in the last decade or so. Um, we had the natural gas fracking revolution, which actually replaced a lot of coal in the U.S. with natural gas production. Because natural gas is is not only cleaner, it's also cheaper, and it's it's more competitive in the market. And so I don't think it's really a matter of we need to choose this energy source or choose that one. We need to force this one to stay in the ground or whatnot. We need to focus on how can we make energy as cheap as possible and how can we make clean energy as cheap as possible. And so my hope and my ambition is that one day um, it'll be cheaper to leave coal in the ground and to pursue nuclear energy or renewable energy instead of that coal. But it's not about forcing communities to shut off their economic livelihoods. It's about about providing other opportunities. And I think technology can achieve that. But it's possible that technology will also achieve um, clean coal, where we can capture the emissions when we burn the coal. And that would be a way to continue using that without having an impact on the environment. And so I think there's lots of different options there. But it's not a matter of just forcing people to shut down um, their economic livelihoods. I appreciate that answer. And and to, to me, the only time it ever becomes an issue of, of force is basically when we tell government, look, you figure this out for us. Um, I like to see more um, private, you know, solutions coming forward. And, you know, there may be some regulatory influence government still has, but it just seems like we get so much more bang for the buck when when it's coming from the private sector, even if it's for profit. If someone's providing the right value, I, I'm like, well, they ought to. They ought to reap the reward then. Uh, exactly. Chris, tell us where people can find your writing. Tell us uh, where they can find you or follow you on social media. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the American Conservation Coalition, our website is acc.eco, so acc.eco. Um, and that's where you can find a lot of our articles and the work that we do on getting these sensible messages to the people. Um, in terms of social media, you can follow me at Chris Barnard. DL uh, on Twitter, uh, and that's where you can find my hot and sometimes not so good takes um, and <laughs> all my articles as well. I appreciate uh, appreciate you visiting with me today, Chris. Thanks. I hope we talk again soon. Awesome. Thank you, Brian.